While you remain standing, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6. The Gospel of Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read the first six verses of Mark 6. If you're visiting, I've uh, been preaching a series uh, through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, began uh, early this year and uh, are continuing now, having come to chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. This is God's word. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, The prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no might. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing this morning on your word proclaimed from this pulpit and in this place. Lord, we pray that the word as it is proclaimed that it would be faithfully preached. We pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that our hearts would receive your word, and that it would take root and bear fruit to the glory of your name. May your word not return empty or void, but accomplish the purposes for which you send it forth here this morning. And, O Lord, wherever it is faithfully preached today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Prior to Mark chapter 6, Jesus had been uh, uh, ministering in and around Galilee. And uh, he would, would go across the Sea of Galilee, and then come back to the other side, and we read about these kind of things happening in the earlier chapters of, of Mark. And we saw in one of, those, one of those trips across the Sea of Galilee that there was a huge storm, and Jesus was lying asleep in the bow of the boat, and the disciples got all concerned and upset, and uh, don't you care that we're dying, you know? And uh, Jesus calms the winds and the waves. And uh, there we see Jesus proclaiming that he has power over nature. He has power over nature. Then the next uh, scene we have is uh, Jesus coming to uh, the, uh, the, Gazer- uh, the Gazarenes, where there was a man who was demon-possessed by legion, and Jesus throws out these legion of demons into a herd of swine that go running into the sea. 
Jesus there showing that he has power over the devil and over the demonic, over evil. And then immediately following that, Mark records for us that uh, Jesus was uh, uh, walking, teaching, proclaiming, and a woman who for 12 years had uh, an issue uh, of, uh, of hemorrhaging, touched his garment and was healed, showing that Jesus has power over sickness and over the effects of sin in our lives. And then immediately following that, Jesus heals, or not heals, raises up Jairus' daughter who had died, showing Jesus has power over death. And the point that I had been making, uh, and, and it's important, is prior to those four uh, awesome, wonderful miracles that we have just uh, concluded looking at, prior to that, Jesus was talking about the kingdom, and he was telling parables about the kingdom. And the point that, that I've been making is, after telling about the kingdom of God, now Jesus was saying, now let me show you the king. I mean, this is why the kingdom is going to reach to the ends of the earth. Not because of your abilities, but because I am king and I have power over all things. All authority. Over nature. Over Satan. Over your sicknesses and your hurts and your pains. And I have power over death itself. This is what we've been seeing up to this point. And then, uh, and we also noted that, interestingly, Revelation, which shows the consummation of the kingdom of God, reveals to us Jesus' power over nature and how there will be no raging seas, but only a sea of crystal, sea of glass. And how Satan will be cast into the eternal lake of fire, no longer to harass God's people for all eternity. Christ's power over Satan. Christ's power over our sicknesses. There will be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more tears. Revelation 21. And, of course, his power over death is seen in that he gives to his people eternal life and he raises, he will raise up our mortal bodies to be like his immortal body and we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. So what we're seeing here in Mark is, is a foretaste, a foretaste and preparation for the consummation of the kingdom. You, you've heard about the kingdom, now let me show you the king. This is what we're seeing here. And now, uh, we, we're, we're turning a corner a little bit. Now, Jesus here, he uh, leaves the region of Galilee, returns to his hometown, which is Nazareth. And uh, Nazareth, by the way, is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not even mentioned by Josephus, an early ancient uh, historian, it was just a small podunk town, you know, uh, maybe, uh, you know, what would we say, you know, four corners or one stop sign or something, you know, it was just, it, it was just a small, nobody uh, of significance had ever come from Nazareth, it was just a little place. And 
Jesus returns to Nazareth. He, of course, was born in Bethlehem, but then uh, Mary and Joseph returned back to Nazareth where Jesus was raised as a little child. And, uh, and so Nazareth uh, probably had no more than you know, 500 people. And, and uh, probably Jesus knew most of them, having grown up in that place. It was just a you know, typical small town. And so he returns to Nazareth and teaches in the synagogue. Uh, and we have here Jesus teaching and having done some uh, amazing miracles and the people are offended. Mark isn't just giving us this information, by the way. Mark has written his uh, gospel, the gospel of Mark, and the other gospels for the same purpose. But Mark has written his gospel, not just to give us information about Jesus and about his ministry, but to persuade us to trust in Jesus. This is so important that we understand that. This isn't just, oh, that's interesting. He went to Nazareth. They didn't like him. Uh, is, it, Mark is giving us this so that you would trust in Jesus, that you would not be like the Nazarenes who didn't believe. In other words, Mark's purpose is evangelistic, so that you would believe in Jesus Christ, have your sins forgiven and be saved and reconciled. Well, in this chapter, there, uh, in this passage, verses 1 through 6, we have... Uh, interestingly, two different reactions. Uh, one is the reactions of the people to Jesus, and they were offended. And the other is the reaction of Jesus to the people, and he marveled. <laughs> so we have offended and marveled. Uh, and I want us to just kind of look at this passage uh, through those uh, lenses. So the people, first of all, so the first point, the people were offended by Jesus. Um, but, and, and by the way, we need to just recognize right away that, that this shows us the, the perversity of the human heart. The perversity of the human heart. Um, they were offended by Jesus, or they took offense. Uh, you know, I don't usually do this, but I thought this is, this is helpful today that we... we do a little word study. The word uh, took offense comes from the, the Greek word skandalizomai. Uh, and the noun uh, is uh, skandalon. Well, we can make the connection, can't we? They, the people were scandalized by Jesus. They took offense by Jesus. He was a scandal to them. But what's very important about that word that Mark uses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is... Scandalon was also a term used by uh, stonemasons to rejecting those bad stones, the, uh, the rejected stones. That, that rejected stone was a scandalon. Let's get rid of the uh, scandalon. It's, it's not good. So uh, stones that were taken from a quarry to a building site those builders would be uh, inspecting those stones and the ones that were flawed, cracked maybe, those were scandalon. <laughs> and they rejected those. 
Well, I hope you see. I hope that brings to your mind Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And God appointed Christ to be the chief cornerstone of his people and of his kingdom. And here in Nazareth, that chief cornerstone is considered flawed and repulsive. Scandalon. Why? Well, we read, it's interesting, we read here that he came on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, which we find Jesus typically did. Uh, uh, and uh, many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hand? They recognized there is wisdom in his teaching. And they recognized that he was doing mighty works. They didn't question these things. And yet they were offended. Yet they were offended. Again, perverse. Twisted. Why is that? Well, I, th I, I think one of the reasons, there's a few reasons I want to bring out here of why the people were offended. One is that I think they probably agreed with the Pharisees in, uh, in their assessment of the source of Jesus' power. Remember, in uh, chapter 3, the Pharisees concluded that Jesus was able to do these things by the power of Beelzebul, power of Satan. And likely, the Nazarites who were here were thinking the very same thing. I mean, because otherwise, why would they be offended? If they acknowledge that his teaching is with wisdom, and they acknowledge that he's able to do some amazing miracles, why would they be offended? And I think one of the reasons is they agreed with the Pharisees. This isn't, this isn't of Yahweh. This is of Beelzebul. And uh, that was a continued uh, uh, assessment of Jesus' ministry. And that was, frankly, one of the reasons that he was sent to the cross was on the charge of sorcery. <laughs> he was, nobody, nobody denied that Jesus was able to do amazing things. Their concern was, what's the source? And it wasn't heavenly miracles. It wasn't a breakthrough of heaven into earth. It was... Beelzebul, it was evil. And he was charged with sorcery as well as blasphemy. So I think the people were uh, in that line of thinking. Uh, but also, uh, I believe they uh, didn't receive Jesus. They were offended by Jesus uh, because of Jesus' upbringing. In uh, verse 3, we have here, isn't this, is not this, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Uh, why didn't they say the son of Joseph? When you read your Bibles, have you noticed, whenever there is a designation of somebody, the designation is as the son of the father. That, that was just simply how... Uh, the Jews in that time, they, that's how they designated the people. That was the son of their fathers. 
Why here was it not the son of Joseph? Now, Joseph probably at this point uh, had died. And I'm arguing here that the reason they didn't that, that they did not say this is the son of Joseph, but rather the son of Mary is to point out that uh, Jesus' birth was, in their mind, illegitimate. They were referring to the fact that he was not the legitimate son of Joseph, that uh, uh, Mary was conceived out of wedlock, and this is Jesus's family. This is Jesus' history. They consider Jesus as illegitimate. And then when, by asking, where, where is this wisdom given to him? It's because they knew that Jesus, who grew up in Nazareth, he didn't study under the rabbis. He didn't go to seminary. The thing is, it's not wasn't a matter of jealousy. It was a matter just simply of disdain. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you think you are? You're just a carpenter, a builder, son of Mary, untaught. How dare you? And Jesus responded by saying, a prophet is not without honor. Double negative here in English, not without honor. So the meaning, the, the, a prophet is with honor everywhere else except in his hometown and in his family and with, among his relatives. And we know that too, right? With his relatives in uh, chapter 3, Mary and his brothers went to rescue Jesus from himself. Uh, chapter 3, verse 21 but I want to say to you that Nazareth's rejection of Jesus here is simply a picture, and, 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 and basically it's, it's the world in miniature. It's the world in miniature. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected of men. In John 1, it says, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He worked as a carpenter in that town, and he was rejected by them. You see the perversity of the human heart. Just like the, when the, the, the story of the, in, in the Gerizines in chapter 5, where Jesus cast legion into the pigs, and the town people came and said, please leave. We don't want you here. And what's interesting in this passage is there's a sense of finality. I'm going to get in a moment where it's, a, it's verse 5, he could not do any mighty work there. There's a sense of finality here with Jesus and Nazareth. Uh, Mark records no other visits of Jesus to Nazareth after this point. And there probably were none. You see, sin not only affects our morality, it, it, it affects our minds, it affects how we think, and it twists and perverts how we think. So that the people who heard the wisdom of Jesus, who saw his mighty deeds, 
who had the Son of God walking in their midst were offended and scandalized by him. If you've read the uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, uh, when I was growing up, we had the, the packet of seven books, and uh, I loved those books. I read them countless times. And uh, in the last one is The Last Battle. And in The Last Battle, there's uh, this uh, interesting uh, 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 scene for us uh, where uh, the dwarves, where Aslan provides the dwarves a nice feast, a banquet for them. But their hearts and their minds were closed and hardened. And they would say, you can't fool us. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You know, I mean, that was their, their big saying. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And they can't fool us. And so instead of enjoying the wonderful feast that Aslan gave them, they just saw it as straw and stubble and mud and stones. And the point is, that's what, that's what sin does. Isaiah 55 says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? You see, the point is, that doesn't make sense. You're being offered this great banquet. Why would you waste it? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food and incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. And the people to this day with closed minds will not come, will not eat. They refuse, sin perverts. In Nazareth, they saw the incarnate goodness, incarnate wholeness. They saw the incarnate majesty of God. They were offended. And now Jesus, what's his response? He marvels. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. In other words, the unbelief is kind of incredible. And I mean that in not credible. It's not realistic. It's, it's that why would you buy for that which does not satisfy? What, what, why, why go that direction? You think of that. Jesus marveled. The one by whom all things were made... We, we know the vast universe, right? We, we, and we marvel at, you know, I mean, you know, science and, and the internet today, we could kind of start delving into those things. Like, wow, it's just amazing how vast the, you know, trillions of stars. I mean, you can't even number them. Uh, it's, it, we marvel at that. We, we marvel at the, the, the beauty of the oceans or the power of the oceans or the beauty of the mountains. All of these things we marvel at, but... God doesn't. He created them by his word. And set them all in order and in, 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 in place and by design. 
But Jesus here, who is by whom all things were made and created, is he marveled at this unbelief because it goes against what is true. It goes against the order. It goes against the design, this unbelief. It's in, not credible. And he just shakes his head and marvels. Wow. And that unbelief results in God's rejection and in Christ's rejection. He could do no mighty work there. Interesting. It doesn't say he would do no mighty work there. He said he could do no mighty works there. What an amazing statement that is. Uh, You know, of course, God is sovereign and he is almighty. And there is nothing he cannot do in accord with his nature. And so I was thinking about this, saying, well, why, why is it that wording this way? Verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there. And I think the answer is where, where the kingdom is rejected by hardened hearts, where the kingdom is rejected, it is inappropriate for the king to share his gifts. The depth of their unbelief caused Jesus to marvel. And it wouldn't be right for the king to display his kingly power among such unbelief. And so there is this sense of finality. You know, there's only one other place where we read about Jesus marveling. Maybe some of you uh, can think about that. Where, where, where is it? Where do we... Because there's just one other place in the Gospels that tell us that Jesus marveled. This, this passage here, he marveled at their unbelief. In Matthew chapter 8, a Roman Gentile centurion came to Jesus in order to heal his servant. And uh, Jesus was ready to go with him. And this, the Gentile, this Gentile Roman centurion said, no, 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 you, you don't have to come with me. All you have to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. And then we read, and Jesus marveled and said, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. And I think there's a huge contrast there of the marveling. You have the, the, the one marveling uh, where uh, he marvels that the covenant people of God seeing and hearing all that his, he has done as the king of the kingdom, they don't believe. And he marvels at that. And he marveled at this Roman Gentile centurion believed. Where one would expect faith, there's unbelief. And where one would expect unbelief, there's faith. And Jesus marveled at these things. Well, I want to just make a couple of points before we close. Um, one of them is this, that because this is the case, we, the church of Jesus Christ, we as Christians today, should not be surprised that the world is offended by us. We really shouldn't be that surprised. Um, I watch the news and I you know, keep my eye on culture. And uh, clearly those who are 
Christian who are professing the truth of God's word, who are pro- standing on and proclaiming the gospel and biblical morality, we are an offense to our culture. We are an offense today in the United States of America because of what we stand for, because of what we believe. We just simply shouldn't be surprised at that is, is the point I want to make. Uh, uh, that, that, that should not surprise us. Uh, they might say to us, well, who do you think you are? You know, that, and all we can say is we are hell-deserving sinners who have been uh, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And we stand on that gospel when we stand on this word. But we also know that we're no greater than our master. And if they hated him, they're going to hate us. So I think that's just important that we, 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 we keep that in the forefront of our thinking. That, you know, not that we intend to be an offense, but by standing on God's word, we will be an offense. And the cross will always be a scandal on, an offense to this world. But a second thing I want to say uh, as some application is that we, the church, should not take our privileges for granted. Because Nazareth here was privileged. In uh, Matthew chapter 11, we read of Jesus speaking curses on the cities, and he says, and you, Capernaum, this is where he uh, spent much of his ministry in Capernaum. You, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You, Capernaum, you had the law of God. You had the testimony of the prophets. You had seen and heard the Son of God in your midst. And you rejected You were offended. You were scandalized. And it'll be better for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Better for sin-soaked Sodom than for covenant-privileged Capernaum (laughs) or covenant-privileged Nazareth. We are privileged, congregation. Coram Deo is privileged. We have elders who love the church and who are mindful of watching over the teaching. Uh, Is the word of God being taught? Is it being preached? Is it being proclaimed? And uh, certainly, I know, sometimes it's not preached as well, as clearly as it ought. Uh, I, I certainly know my own weaknesses in that regard, but I also know this, our desire and our efforts are to proclaim the word of God faithfully and to, to, to uphold the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. We are a church that believes the word of God is true, and we are a church that upholds and, 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 and rejoices in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I, I just simply want to say, don't take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. 
Does your heart burn with passion for Jesus Christ? Because it should. It should. Do you want to know him better? Paul, I'm always amazed. Paul, here's, he, he was a missionary. And, and uh, in Philippians, he says, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Here he is, a missionary proclaiming Christ. He's an older man. And at that point, he's, there's this longing that he would know Christ all the more. Do you have any sense of that? Do you have any, any feel of that in your heart? Or is he an offense to you? Or... In, in, in a sense, maybe worse, is he nothing? Like you're just kind of lukewarm. Is church and, and Christianity just ho-hum to you? Just something you, something you do? Is grace a word that defines your orthodoxy? Or is it a truth that has captured your heart? You see the difference? Is grace a word that will define your orthodoxy? Or is it a truth that has captured your heart? You see, and when, when it has captured your heart, you say, oh, Jesus, I love you. And I want to live for you. And what I'm doing on Sunday morning is the joy of my heart to be in the house of the Lord and to lift up the name of the God who saved me from death and hell and eternal condemnation and has brought me into his marvelous light. I would live for you. And I am not offended. I am not scandalized by Jesus Christ. He gave his life. He broke his body and shed his blood for me. I will not be scandalized by him. Amen. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. Forgive us, Lord, for taking for granted the gospel and our Savior. You have blessed us so greatly, and we are so privileged. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be captured in love and wonder and awe and in dedication to our great Savior, who is King of the kingdom, in which we are citizens. Oh, Lord. Increase our love. For Jesus' sake, amen.